Welcome to Reframe and Reset Your Career, a career development podcast to help if you're looking for a job, feeling stuck in your career, looking to change your perspective, or just rediscover your why. I'm your host, Harsha Borolesa, and this podcast came about from my passion for neuroscience and psychology and their interaction with career and personal development. In each episode, I will be interviewing recognized experts and successful professionals and asking them about their career journey, their real life experiences, and to share the insights and strategies that have helped their careers thrive. Implementing change is not easy and does take time, but I do hope that their stories will inspire you to take a fresh look at your career and assist you on your path to a more successful and fulfilling career. Here are some highlights of today's episode. Noticing the signals of change is a skill of the future. It, I guess it just elevated the cost of inaction, much like COVID. We only live once. The idea that professional loyalty now flows horizontally to your network as opposed to vertically up the corporate hierarchy, I think is really powerful. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Reframe and Reset Your Career podcast. I'm delighted to welcome Diana Wu David. Welcome, Diana. Thank you so much, Harta. Great to have you here. Diana is a former Financial Times executive, author of Future Proof, Reinventing Work in an Age of Acceleration, and an adjunct professor at Columbia Business School's Ember Global Asia. She works with global leaders, companies, and boards to enhance their ability to adapt, contribute, collaborate, and grow. She has consulted with or spoken to clients, including JP Morgan, AXA, Credit Suisse, Mandarin Oriental Hotel Group, the World Bank, Asia Development Bank, Expedia, and Randstad, and writes about the future of work for publications, including Fast Company Inc. and Thrive, and speaks globally on the future of work, corporate governance and boards, and East-West issues. Welcome, Diana. Thank you so much. It's really lovely to be here, and I always enjoy our conversations. Is, is there a quote that you would like to share with our listeners? Uh, you asked me that, and I found one that I do love. Um, it is by a 17th century Japanese poet and samurai, Muzuta Masahida, and it is, My barn having burned down, I can now see the moon. So very much of, of this era we are in with so much disruption um, and a, a bit of a positive take uh, on what's possible. Wow. You know, it's all about, I think, trying to reframe things. Um, something might go wrong, but you need to try and look at the best out of the situation. And I think um, with your career or actually in life, it's very much about trying to look at things in a different way changing your perspective, changing your perception. Um, so yeah, that, that ties in really well. So thank, thanks for sharing that. And I think it's the first- I uh, special for you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm flattered, Diana, thank you. <laughs> Going back to your career, I, um, well, actually, one thing I found interesting was that you started off your um, university at Occidental. Um, and I think that's the same university as Barack Obama. Is, is that right? Yes, he went to uh, Occidental College for a few years. 
and then went on to Columbia. So sadly, you know, he and I both went to Occidental and then I went to Columbia for business school. Um, but sadly, I just don't seem to be able to catch up to him in terms of the career. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> yeah, you've done pretty well, uh, Diana. I'm, I'm sure he's saying, oh, that Diana Wu David. <laughs> Dr. Henry Kissinger, who um, for our listeners who may not have come across him, was a, a really heavy hitter back back in the day, um, obviously opening up China and you know being part of very, various administrations. That must have been a really interesting start to your working career. Absolutely. Um, he had his consulting firm. I worked for him in New York and I had just come incredibly naive from studying international relations uh, in Los Angeles. And so to be in that office, even to see who came through the door, what conversations he had, um, how he operated, which was very much an East Coast style and and very at the highest levels really was eye-opening for somebody who had just previous to that been mostly reading books. I think the higher up you go in your career, you realize there are these very small things which can make have huge impacts. Um, I mean, maybe not so much at the start of your career, but especially higher up. And I think if you can see somebody in action like you know, Dr. Kissinger, that must be quite an eye-opening experience. Absolutely. And it's ironic because I didn't think of China or Asia being a focus. I spoke French and really uh, focused on other things. And it's ironic that I've now spent 20 years, you know, off and on in Hong Kong when that was so much a part of his career, opening up China, the U.S. and China relations. So I guess for my benefit, ultimately. (laughs) (laughs) If only you'd spoken or started learning Mandarin then. I know. If only I had taken more interest, in, you know, I think I probably would have made more of my time. But, you know, I was just out of college and um, I wasn't thinking particularly strategically about my career. I was just thinking about paying my meager rent in, in New York City at that point. And, and having fun, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, and I, I, I had a look at your sort of bio and I could see that you worked in a variety of roles um, yeah, after Dr. Kissinger, including consulting at, at PwC. And I was just wondering, was there any sort of particular strategy to the way you um, sort of moved jobs or was it just one of those things where you know, an interesting opportunity came up and you moved? Um, it'd be interesting to get a, a, an insight into that. The reality is it wasn't a a grand plan or strategy, and I have tried a lot of things. I went to business school right after Dr. Kissinger, and I was 25 when I got out of business school. So really it was that whole period was experimenting. It was sort of a, what do I want to do? What do I love? Um, And so part of the reason I went into management consulting is because I felt like I I could get a lot of different experimentation um, from that in different companies, but let's face it, and this is something we can talk about later. I went into consulting because that's what everybody else did, and it was cool, and I figured if I could get it and everybody else wanted it, then it must be really good. 
And and it wasn't, to be honest, it was not my favorite job that I've had. <laughs> so it was a good lesson. <laughs> but it was also, I was 25 and I was the one that always got on the plane. And because other people that were my level had families and they rightly pushed back. And I just said, okay, you know, whatever work you have, just throw it my way. So I learned a lot and I feel so grateful. It was an experiment for me and I felt like I'd learned enough. And then I went to Asia so I could continue growing. And and I think that's a good point because I think sometimes people feel once they make a decision, you have to stick with it, you know, come hell or high water. And I think the intelligent person will actually look at the experience, the reality of the situation and not be driven by their peer group. Because I totally agree with you. So many people who go to business school end up in consulting and it's a, it's a very glamorous role. You're flying around, you've got sort of access to very high level people. But sometimes as you're saying, it's long hours, you're not at home. Um, How do you sort of have a family life? It's very tough. So in a way, I think seeing the the reality, seeing your skill set, and then try to see the future, I think that's an intelligent uh, and mature decision to make. Well, most of my um, early career really was experiments. And I thought of it that way. And I remember, you know, fast forward to the, the longest time that I've spent anywhere, which is over 10 solid years at Financial Times and, uh, you know, still am a part-time working with them. So I guess it's been um, even more years. I remember looking at resumes and people saying, oh, you know, they've, they've dumped around too much. They haven't been at the same company. And it was such a shock because I thought, I don't know how I got hired here, <laughs> first of all, but, um, but I fundamentally disagree with that idea. I appreciate that people can stick through. Like, I think that you can see, you know, that, that people don't leave when the going gets tough and that that's something that you're looking for, but also, the, in the future of work and in the future we're looking at, things are volatile. Our lifespans are increasing. Company lifespans are decreasing so that the average age of a corporation on the S&P 500 is supposed to be 12 years by 2030. And so I don't think that you can realistically um, put all your eggs in one basket and say that I'm going to stick it out in this company and and I'm going to give up all of my agency and just hope that the company acts in my best career interest. So, um, so I'm quite happy. Maybe it's a, a justification by my um, sort of looking just at whatever the next step is. Learning, I do reflect and learn from every time that I have my um, my work. I reflect on what I what value I contributed, what I liked about it, and what I didn't, and where I go from there. And that's. That's basically been my strategy, which I think you might call trial and error, <laughs> but it's it's been it works for me. No, but I, I think that's an interesting point there because I think sometimes if you do end up staying at one place for too long, you almost feel um, as if you can't move, and you get very ingrained in this whole idea of this culture, and there is only one way of doing things. And I think sometimes when you move for the first time. It can be quite discombobulating, um, especially if you've got um, let go or be made redundant. But actually, I think the really interesting thing is that when you actually go to that next company, you know, 
people are people. They have their same sort of wants and desires and insecurities as everywhere else. And I think actually making that first step and then the second the second move is not as difficult. And then going onwards, it, like what what's the big deal? This is just part of working life. It is really difficult. And um, the last couple of years, or even the, the, the years of thinking about uh, my role at Financial Times, I love that company. You know, I love the people I work with, but at the same time, I felt like the way that the company was going didn't allow me a lot of room to grow. Being able to, to kind of leave that was, in many people's eyes, the stupidest idea that I could have ever had. But I, now I work with a lot of people like that who are incredibly successful. And sometimes they feel empty. Sometimes they they look at the future of industry and see the writing on the wall. And it's better to jump when you're at the top of the, the curve, not when you're already going down. And, you know, and there are a lot of people going, oh, no, this industry is is on the way. And what are we going to do? And you're all competing to leave. I think that it's important to be to, to really look at the future of work and look at what you love and see where those two things intersect. And I think that's an interesting point you made there about being strategic, um, because I think it's much easier to find a job when you're doing well and maybe things are going well. But I think when you see the decline, I suppose looking back, say, 20 odd years, you look at the newspaper industry. It was doing so well in the 90s and then suddenly the 2000s come along and it falls off a cliff. Um, But if you could have almost looked to the future and thought, okay, I've got these skills. How can I reinvent myself, redefine myself? Then maybe you could have staked a claim on the internet or some other media. So I think this whole idea of looking to the future is is very sensible. Absolutely. Well, it it doesn't, you don't have to. You can also find the future at your own company. Um, And I did feel like that was possible. You know, the, the Financial Times has spent a lot of time experimenting in digital and ultimately has moved that direction. A lot of people that I see prior to COVID were surprised by maybe getting made redundant, not ready for that. And so I think if you are strategic, if you are always thinking about it, then you can be more ready when there's disruption to yourself. Now we fast forward to you know, a year and a half, two years into COVID, people are going, maybe I'm not getting fired, but I am just burnt out and I'm tired. I've reassessed, you know, my requirements, right? Nobody moved in the last year and a half. If they could, it was just either the company said, okay, everybody just stay where they are. Nobody's getting promoted. Nobody's, you know, just stability is key. Um, And so now I think in the next year and a half, you see a lot of people, you know, going hashtag great resignation, I'm done, I need to anything but this, or let me rethink. And partly because, you know, it's been stark, people, almost everybody has had somebody who who died in their families, uh, or in their friends group or at work. And um, that really opens your eyes to what's important. 
No, no, totally. And and I think sort of leading on from that, I think when you were at the FT, there was this defining event, I think, with your um, one of your uh, best friends. And I think mm. that led to uh, your your TED talk, which, which I love. Uh, definitely check, yeah. check that out. And I'll include the link in the show notes. But but I think that also led to um, future proof the book. Would you mind just um, talking a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. And happy for you to link to the TED Talk because that goes into more detail. But really, I had in New York City with the cheap apartment, and you're right, lots of fun, uh, my college roommate who was so, um, we had so much fun and we were going to conquer the world. And we continued to stay in touch. In New York City, we were roommates. And then fast forward to sort of 2000, I can't even remember the year really, but um, she was in Germany. I had moved to Hong Kong. She had a big setback in her life and her career had not been at maybe what she wanted it to be. And we spent a lot of time saying like, oh, we should do this, we should do that, but not doing it. Like, hey, maybe I'll go to business school. Maybe I'll write a book. Maybe I'll take a risk and leave this job and go to another one. Neither of us were doing any of that. We were just like, well, maybe tomorrow. And so she committed suicide and it was such a shock to me. And it really made me think, wow, all that stuff that we said we should do and we were... I mean, we were just too scared to do it. it. I guess it just elevated the cost of inaction, much like COVID. We only live once. Our frequent flyer miles, as dear as they were to me, they are not the most important. They should not be the most important thing in my life. Right. And so, yeah, that launched it. That made me, I mean, I didn't, I stayed working for three years after that full time at my FT role, but it really did make me think. First of all, I wrote a, my first book, which is a children's book. Um, and I just started doing things, all the things that I thought, you know, it's not that hard. I could just do the small action that will bring me, at least put me on the path to some of these bigger ideas I had and ultimately um, decided to to really rearrange into a portfolio career, which still includes CFT, which I'm lucky, lucky for, but does not include, you know, full-time FT role a lot of travel, you know, every other week. And, um, and that's great. It's been really fulfilling. And I, I think about her a lot when I look at people and, and even now when I serve other people, I think about her, she motivates me to help other people in transition. And I, I think that's a really interesting point, Diana, this whole idea about you know, personal relationships, because I think, okay, this may be a bit sort of philosophical, but yeah, ultimately, uh, it, it's all about those relationships, you know, however well you do in your career, how much money you have, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying those things, material things aren't important, but it's the relationships you have with your family, your friends, your loved ones. And I think those are things that are really important. And you know, we should all spend a bit more time to be you know, grateful for, for those things. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember really viscerally doing budgeting in September and the amount of time that we would put into you know, the financial projections and resource allocation across countries and you know, what targets were and what compensation plans. And I remember thinking, wow, I do this every year and I work so hard to crush my targets. And what would happen if I spent as much energy and emotion and time 
trying to build the best life that I could build instead of just trying to increase financial time newspaper circulation in whatever country. And that was a pivotal moment where I was like, yeah, what if, what would that even look like? Yeah, the, so, the, the world wouldn't come to an end. Yeah, the, I, and for sure the FT would survive, but like if I don't do it for myself, then who else is going to do it? Sort of leading on from that, um, would you like to give a brief overview of, of Future Proof, uh, just a sort of quick high-level thing, and then we'll dive into some specific points? Yeah, absolutely. So, it, you know, the emotional motivation, I guess, for changing life is the TED talk that I did. Um, and that opened up a lot of conversations at a completely different level with people. And then I continued to teach and, and do my sit on boards. And then I kept seeing people say, wow, often in the board director program who would say, I really want to do something else. I am at that point in my life where I need a career reset. Um, oftentimes they were very successful, but they didn't know how to change. And so um, we would have coffee after coffee because I was kind of the, the program director, the, the teacher, and they'd say, what should I do? What should I do with my life? What's going to, you know, what do you think about the future of work? And so I was like, God, if these people are asking me, they're in real trouble. That's basically what I was thinking. But I thought, I really want to know that too. So I started interviewing people that I thought were doing interesting things and seemed to know more than me. I am a maven by nature, so I'm always collecting information. And this was my obsessive topic. And I wrote this book, which was basically, this is the vision I have of the future of work. It's going to be very different. You better get ready. And so that's the first part. But also that in my own experience, it has been amazing. And because of technology and globalization and demographics, there are, are more opportunities than ever before. And then for the book, I went through the four aspects that I found that were really useful to the people I interviewed, which was reinvention, experimentation, collaboration, and focus. I felt like those are the things we need to master in the future of work. And then wrapping it up in conversation about a different idea of success, which is really success on your own terms, not on by external measure or by whatever you've been programmed to believe is important. That's a brilliant summary. And that, that's a great blueprint for anybody else who wants to be a futurist. Go and have coffee with a lot of important people and then <laughs> profess that you have the knowledge of the future. You're a seer. <laughs> I've been in corporate innovation and strategy my whole life. So that, that isn't such a far step to being a futurist. And in fact, I don't even know where the name of a, a futurist um, came it came actually after I wrote the book. I didn't think of myself as a futurist, but it's not that different than being in a company and saying, here's all the evidence I've seen of what's happened in the past. And here are a lot of potential things that we could do in the future. You know, what are some of the small tests that we could take um, or experiments we could make to see if any of these are right for us? That is what futurists do, but it seems mundane compared to the title. But, but actually, I think that that's an interesting point, because essentially you're looking in the past and thinking, OK, uh, you, you can have these three or four different or, or many more different outcomes in the future, depending on global events. And all you're trying to do is say, OK, in the best case scenarios, that's great. But in the worst case scenarios, what can I do to mitigate that risk? 
And I think it's almost, uh, as you're saying, being aware of what's going on, what's happening in the future. And, and we're not saying, look, you have to be amazingly prescient. But I think just having a, a bit of time to think about your career, seeing what other people in your position are doing, maybe the people three or four years ahead of you, and then figuring out, you know, is this sustainable in the future? Because in a lot of careers, it's not. So you really then have to think, okay, how do I pivot or reinvent myself or do something differently? Absolutely. And people, uh, part of it is just putting your head up and noticing what's going on. And we don't always do that when we're like in our company, you know, oftentimes we don't even look outside our company to see what's going on. We're just heads down, you know, working as hard as we can to go up the, the company ladder. Noticing the signals of change is a skill of the future. And sort of going uh, on sort of specific areas in your book, um, I really love this whole idea of shifting mindset. And that really ties in with this podcast because it's, you know, reframe and reset your careers, trying to look at things in a, in a different way. And I love this one line, which I picked up. I, this is to prove I had read the book. <laughs> <laughs> or at least that one line. <laughs> exactly. Where you say, I think one shift is from a linear path to one of agility and experimentation. Because I think so many people have this, um, or they think their career should be very linear. But actually, I think going forward, you're going to have these very volatile movements because of these external factors. So yeah, I, I, I totally agree with this whole idea of mindset that that is so key, having the right mindset. Don't you think so, Diana? Well, since you just quoted my book to me, of course, I think so. <laughs> but I get I'll do you one better, Harsha. I, I have since the book came out been running these sort of mastermind communities. And it's been so fun because it's based on the book and people are kind of, you know, working the program, the future-proof formula together and in a community. And one of the things that somebody said to me, who's head of the International Bank of Settlements here, he said, you know, what you're really talking about is going from a career mindset to a value mindset. Like what value am I providing? So instead of saying I'm an accountant and now I'm going to go into crypto, you're really like digging deep as to, you know, beyond the functional, what kind of person are you and how does that add value to the situation that you're in? Uh, and I thought that that was really useful. That idea of, I like to think of it as the kaleidoscope or a mosaic where, you know, once you add these new experiences and new self-awareness, that allows you to do different things and to sort of to be a new, to add more value, be a new kind of picture of yourself. Totally agree. And I love this idea of these small experiments and getting these quick feedback uh, so you can see the results. And I think that sort of ties quite nicely with technology where you're doing these sprints, you're getting something out there, and then you're trying to figure out, you know, does this work? Doesn't it? Because I think sometimes having, you know, investing huge amounts of time, maybe six months, nine months a year, then saying, well, it doesn't work uh, or like giving up your job and then going off to do something else, which may not work out. Do these sort of small experiments on the side and, and see how they work. It's easier than ever for you to do those kind of experiments. So instead of deciding to launch a newsletter, you can start writing on Medium and get feedback in terms of whether or not people are interested. And uh, I remember for myself, I loved my job that was in venture capital. And so at some point, I was invited to join a um, incubator and investment angel investing fund. And I decided not to do it because it was 
going to be basically mean sort of no money for a long period of time. And then if we were lucky, we'd get more back. And so I decided to just stay in my job and allocate a portion of my salary to investing in companies and became, I went on the advisory board for them instead of joining them as a partner. And my whole goal was, is this something I like enough to do full time? You know, all I lost was the money. In fact, I think almost all of it (laughs) that I spent invested into the companies. There's still one that is out there. And what I found is that I didn't want to do it full time and that I was fascinated by all the ideas of startups. But the whole way to make money is really, you know, the financial aspect of it, the term sheets, the negotiation, the unemotional evaluation, for instance, of whether or not they had the total market size, uh, enough total market size. And that stuff, I I, I could do it, but it, it didn't jazz me. So now I write a lot about emerging tech, but I don't actually invest in it. T- totally agree with that. But one other point I really liked was you talked about the importance of your network rather than the sort of the company hierarchy. And I'm sure for a lot of people, I remember when I, I was starting how it work, you're thinking, okay, I've joined this company, you know, I, I've got my boss and I really need to make sure that I, I make a good impression on him and the other people in the department. But actually, I think you know, nowadays, as we were talking about, it's really your sort of network, that sort of flat structure of people that, look, if things happen and you lose your job, they're the people who you know, potentially have intelligence for you about new opportunities or help you out or just you know, be, be there to you know, give you ideas. The idea that professional loyalty now flows horizontally to your network as opposed to vertically up the corporate hierarchy, I think is really powerful. Maybe it's a not an instead, but like certainly if you're in a company and working your way up, you have to manage your own stakeholders and manage up and down. But increasingly companies are, you know, sort of a smaller core of people and then a lot of people you can collaborate with on the outside. And so it's not just knowing a lot of people. It's also taking those um, small bets to collaborate with other people and taking opportunities to work with people to see it, you know, how you work and how well you work with other people and, um, and even just, you know, different ways to collaborate and volunteering or having a podcast together, whatever it is, I think is really, is really fun and interesting. And those are the relationships that uh, ultimately maybe get you a job or maybe get you a consulting gig uh, or maybe you're on the inside of the core team and you're pulling other people in. But even if you're inside your company and you know all these people that do amazing things that you can pull in, that's a huge talent. Having that network for your company that you're working for is something that companies are now looking for. Being strategic about your network is something that I teach people, even at the highest level. Even the ones that are like, I'm a CEO now, I want to be a board director. You know, we look at their network and who needs to be kind of activated in order to see if they can do the things they want to do. I think this is sort of quite different from being, you know, when you're growing your network, it's not about being transactional and saying, look, this is what I can do for you. What can you do for me? But I think it's really finding people who 
I think you you have to like them to a certain extent. That if that sort of initial chemistry isn't there, then it's very difficult to have a, a long term relationship. But also looking at the value uh, that you can add to them and that they can add to you, and and also finding people who know stuff that you don't. Because um, I don't know whether I told you this, but about three years ago, I knew nothing about technology, and I I said to myself, I've got to force myself to get into the 21st century. And you know, I I, I basically made friends with people who were the technology geeks and from speaking to them I I started designing an app and then from that came the podcast and the YouTube channel but it was literally just stepping outside my comfort zone to befriend some people who I didn't know and I think that's sometimes really important just going outside your um, little area of expertise and uh, forging new friendships. Well, that, that's something that I talk about in the book in terms of adjacencies. So taking the thing you do well and the thing you want to learn and trying to figure out how you can find a way to combine them. So for instance, I did the same thing. I really love emerging tech. I know how to be a good board director. I teach board behavior, or at least I think I, I know how to be a good one. And so when somebody had a robotics education company, I went on their board as the sort of governance person or, you know, independent person, partly because I wanted to learn more about robotics. And it was a kind of a way for me to serve and then also a platform to learn in a way that made a difference, you know, that was sort of applicable. It was more hands-on. So yeah, absolutely. We're always looking for ways to grow and work to learn. And this other idea I loved was adaptability, which you talk about in the reinvent chapter. And I think that definitely going forward, that whole idea of being able to take your skills and maybe apply them in different ways. I think that's going to be so important. And I was looking at an article from the World Economic Forum, and they were talking about the skills of tomorrow. And they said that almost 50% of all employees will need reskilling by 2025. And I think that just talks about the whole idea of adaptability. Absolutely. Your adaptability quotient, your AQ is a huge aspect. And I believe that the people coming up through the ranks, I see my children and interns and whatnot, that they are more adaptable, partly because they expect to have to be. Whereas people my age really were told, do this, get a good job, you know, get go to a good university, get a good job, work really hard, and then you'll be fine. Follow the paint by numbers or the linear path. And it just doesn't happen that way. So some people are really anxious about the idea that they have full control over their own career. But my feeling is, and I think I put this in my book, that it's sort of this magic portal that you walk through, that once you go through, you realize, wow, I can actually design this myself. This can be whatever crazy psychedelic color, you know, combination that I want. And that could allow me to shine in a way that I never could when I was following somebody else's path. And I think that's a great point you made about fear, because I think that's one of the things that holds so many people back. It's the fear of change, the fear of unknown, and also losing control. But I think if you if you look at your life and your career and you think, okay, there are things that you can control um, and there are things that you can't, focus your energies on what you can control. You know, you can do a good job, you can um, work with the right people. You can create a good network. Um, there, there are endless things. Obviously, you can't control the pandemic, 
But what you can control is the way you respond to that. Think, how can you move forward? Because by not changing, you're sort of thinking that the life will go back to the way it was pre-pandemic, which it may do. I, I hope it does. But it's not always guaranteed, is it? Yes. One of the people that I've worked with, Donna Ivey, who has the Future Work Skills Academy, has said the the roof has blown off the barn, right? We're not going back. This is this is a new, completely new era. Um, I'm sure that in the short term, things may go kind of back to where they were as people kind of want want that sense of familiarity. But I think this has completely changed the way that we go to work and will for the better for for many people, for people who can adapt to it. And it's funny, sort of with with the pandemic, you know, initially, you know, I think like all people, when it happened, you're sort of freaking out. But actually, um, in terms of connecting with different people and collaborating, because that was around the time I I thought about, you know, doing the podcast. And then I joined, you know, Dory Clark's community. And actually, um, the opportunity to meet to connect with people like yourself, with Tori, um, Tammy Gulalope. There are so many great people in that community who who I came across, which if it were not for the pandemic, probably I wouldn't have had that opportunity. So I think it's interesting how there are always potentially positive things that can come out of it. You just need to to look. Absolutely. It's difficult, for sure. Holding your truth slightly is something that helps. Being able to say, "Mm, well, maybe not that, but let me try something else to continue to, to sort of flex those muscles of resilience. I will say um, that one of the things, and you alluded to it before, is the idea of personal resilience and relationship. And while so much of my sort of book intro is about future of work and technology and, and demographics and such, a lot of what I found in terms of the interviews and in terms of the things that were important was the power of having relationships, the power of having people with whom you can be the real you, with whom you can celebrate successes, who you can call up when you don't have your job and you just feel like unlovable. (laughs) Uh, And that is so important for, for people in order to be resilient and adaptable. I suppose it's like submitting one one draft of your book to your editor and they ha- they've come back with a lot of red ink. Yeah, you need the person <laughs> that you can invite to the pub and say, okay, I'm going to get on this tomorrow, but now I need to cry in my cups. <laughs> very true, very true. Yeah, obviously, this is a, a career development uh, podcast. Do you have any practical um, career advice uh, for our listeners? Any sort of small things that... Um, they can implement because sorry, uh, one thing I, I was going to say was that I think the whole idea of execution is is so important. Taking action, which I think you talk about in your in your book, a lot of I think personal development. You have these they're fairly straightforward concepts, but I think where people fail is on the execution side. So mm. in terms of um, you know, practical advice, which people can you know, put into place, um, which might help them. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I feel strongly about experimenting and taking small, imperfect actions forward with the, with the stress on the imperfect. So almost micro steps. And in my experience, even there's somebody in our um, future proof community who, for instance, is going forward to get on boards. And so we were working on her board CV. She kind of thought she was done after that. She's like, so I did the CV and now I'm just going to wait until I see a board position. And I said, 
no, 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 it's just not going to work like that. You're going to think about who realistically is going to have you on a board. You know, you have like this experience and asset management, et cetera. So very like very likely to get on a board, but no one is very likely to do it by accident with their resume sticking, sitting on their computer. And so I was like, who do you think? And we made a list of the kind of people that would be looking for somebody like her. And then it was a, who do you know in those places? Okay, here I can think of 20 right off the bat. Okay, write those down. Okay, do you think you could think of 100 if you if you really tried? Yeah, for sure. And I was like, so when are you going to call those people? And we put together a plan, you know, of the first 3 months, two people every Friday morning and, you know, by in the end of 3 months she's gone through at least her 20. She has a much better idea of whether or not those people have boards and then even if it's two years down the road, she's indicated her interest. So it's boiling those things down to the, the smallest possible action you can take to either test it or move forward. Because I think that most people have a very difficult time with that starting. And I am like analysis paralysis queen. Planning is not the, the action. Planning is not the first step that you take. So in fact, I put together something because people would be like, that's so great. Where do I start? I put together a checklist, which is literally like, yes, no, I have that. Yes, no. And then pick one. And what's the smallest possible action? So that's on my website, which is dianawudavid.com. And we also did a bit.ly, which is bit.ly forward slash prepare for future, because so many people feel like, what's that one thing? How do I start? Where do I go? How do I make that small step? And the first step is always the hardest. So that's my advice. Take that first tiniest little step. I think that's so true. Just a lot of people just worry about how, how to get going. And sometimes you have to not overthink the whole process and just start somewhere. And then maybe, you know, you've had that coffee, you've sent out that email. But I think uh, unless you're in the market, I wouldn't say hustling, but you need to put in the grind and, and, and you need to put in the work because it's about you know, trying to raise your profile, trying to make sure that people, as you said, understand what you're looking for, because it could be that they're really not sure what it is you're looking for. But until you have those conversations with them, you, you just don't know, do you? Yep. You have to put out your, put yourself out there. And, you know, the next thing to do is just the next thing to do. People think, what's the next thing to do? I think you can cure a lot of your anxiety by just moving forward, doing something. And then I think that the hardest thing, for instance, in this community of people in transition has been, they'll do the personal statement, but oh my God, having them put it in our Facebook group for other people to see, it's like the end of the world <laughs> and it's so difficult. And so that is really the thing that is the magic where other people look at you and go, oh yeah, or hey, I don't understand that. Or hey, you're selling yourself short. That's a lot of what happens. And so interacting with people outside your own head is important. <laughs> oh, no, no, totally. And, and I think sometimes just having these conversations, I think uh, we, we have so much in our head until we actually uh, articulate them and, and try to explain to somebody else what it is we're trying to look for, then I definitely think there's something, maybe it's neural connections which are being made. Obviously, I'm not a neuroscientist, but I do think there is something about just talking, um, whether it, you know, it's to a colleague or to a trusted friend. And sometimes these great ideas just happen by simply talking and things just come out of left field. Um, don't you think so? 
Absolutely. I think articulation is a way of sense making for us. And that's an important skill of the future. Brilliant. Obviously, I'll include all your links and social media handles on the show notes. But is there anything else you'd like to say about the book or the work you're doing, Diana, before we um, wrap up? Absolutely. My desire is to um, share my vision of what the future looks like, which I do in the book, and also to serve really to make sure that I can elevate the possibilities for people and reduce the struggle. If people are interested in this, or if I can help them, then I absolutely want to connect with them either on LinkedIn, or you can find me at D-I-A-N-A-W-U-D-A-V-I-D.com, my website. And certainly you can download the checklist if you don't want to ever talk to me (laughs) and just want something to, to ease your way forward. But I'm really open and always interested in building communities and connecting people so that we can make this journey together and really elevate each other and reduce a lot of the friction because it doesn't have to be that way. It can be really fun when we collaborate together. Totally. Uh, sort of one, one thing I, I also picked up was when I was reading your book, I don't think it's just for people in transition. I think there are a lot of um, fundamental principles which you can pick up, even if you're at the start of your career, you know, things like mindset, collaborating, building your network. I think those are things that uh, can equally apply to somebody who's you know, a mid-career professional, but also somebody who's just starting out on their journey. And actually, that's really, if you are starting out on your journey or or you're relatively junior, those things like building a network, you have many more years to build it and many more years to get the value out of it. So I think that that's just as powerful um, or, or even more powerful. There you go. Those, those people. Yeah. So buy my book now and <laughs> the investment will be amortized over your whole life. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. And fundamentally, I wrote it because I believe that these things are crucial for the future of work for everyone. Often people who have gotten caught out by not having some of those skills uh, that I end up speaking to. But I, I work with even secondary school kids in terms of their adaptability mindset and their approach to the future of work, because we don't even know the jobs that they'll have, you know, when they graduate or when they end up in the workforce. So absolutely. So thank you so much. It's really, I appreciate so much the work you're doing and the, the effort you put in to helping other people. No, no, thank you, Diana. And and the last thing is, would you like to give a shout out to anybody who's either helped you in your career, uh, your family, your kids? Of course, uh, of course. <laughs> well, in the very front of the book is a thank you to my husband, Alan Wu, because of course he, none of it would be possible without him in terms of, in part, the experimentation, right? The opportunity being in a dual income household has always given us more opportunities, certainly. uh, And he's super supportive of uh, all the things that I have done. And we have three lovely children. And I swear to God, they teach me so much every day, many, many lessons I have not wanted or been reluctant to learn, but they've made me a better person. And a lot of what I do is hoping to build a better world for the work world that they inherit. Brilliant. Anyway, thanks so much for your uh, time, Dana. Uh, uh, I hope you enjoy your Friday and have a great weekend. Thanks so much. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. 
Thank you so much for listening and staying to the end. That was such an enjoyable interview. If you would like to listen to more episodes, then please consider subscribing to the podcast, which is available on your favorite providers and subscription is free. If you wish to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please take a look at the show notes, which are available online. Thanks once again for listening. Stay safe and look after yourself. I hope you will join me again in the future.